raising children is an endeavor that comes in many phases, each with their own unique challenges. The first few weeks are essentially you and your spouse making note of the color and texture of their bowel movements. Then it's getting them sleeping through the night, getting them through teething, and so on. The toddler years tend to come with more sleep, but they also require a lot more patience. And now that my wife have a five and three-year-old, we find ourselves frequently helping them with their grammar and pronunciation and vocabulary. Our five-year-old recently told us, for example, that we need to, quote, get real of this nonsense, by which he meant get rid of this nonsense. Suffice it to say that this part of the journey comes with its share of laughs. Now, some people, when they think of the Bible, they conceive of it in this sort of rudimentary way. It's kind of like the things that a small child says. It was fine in its context, but now we need to advance to a more enlightened way of speaking. So they inevitably look at the Bible the way I look at my five-year-old. Oh, that's cute. But if he's still saying that when he's 25, I might not think it's as cute. Still others think of the Bible as completely outdated and something that needs to be left behind entirely. Perhaps they like what the Bible has to say when it comes to theology or faith, but they certainly don't take its historical details at face value. They like the Sermon on the Mount, for example, but they don't really believe all the stuff about the virgin birth, the miracles Jesus performed, or the Bible's claim that he was raised from the dead. On last week's podcast, we considered why it is sensible to believe that the Bible has been transmitted accurately to us from its origins, and we found that we can have reasonable certainty that the Bibles we hold in our hands today are consistent with what was originally written. But someone could very well say, okay, I concede that point, but that does not mean the original manuscripts themselves were free from error. Surely a book written such a long time ago must have gotten some facts wrong along the way. So today we're going a step further in saying that the Bible, in its original manuscripts, is completely trustworthy and free from all error. And the word that people use to describe this claim is inerrancy. So to say that the Bible is inerrant is to say that it is, in its original manuscripts, without any error. In other words, Scripture is just as trustworthy when it's describing some miraculous historical event as when it's telling us to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, with that definition in mind, I want to lay out some clarifications about what we mean and don't mean by inerrancy. Then I'll try to point us to some practical takeaways for this particular doctrine. The first clarification is that inerrancy only applies to the original manuscripts. Now, if you missed last week's episode, you really should go back and listen to that. We covered why we can have confidence in our modern translations of the Bible. We have access to thousands of copies of various portions of Scripture, and in any of those copies, there were inevitable errors. Maybe a scribe got a number wrong here or there, for example. But when we compare all of these copies to one another, we can reconstruct what was in the original manuscripts with reasonable certainty. So inerrancy does not mean that every single copy was free from error. It means that the original manuscripts, what we call the autographs, were free from all error. It's also worth pointing out that it is possible for Bible translators to make errors, 
there's not always a one-to-one correlation for each Hebrew or Greek word to its English counterpart. Translators have to take lots of factors into consideration as they try to transmit faithfully the words of Scripture to modern readers, and they sometimes disagree here and there over how to do that work most clearly. We can have reasonable confidence in many translations today, but translators themselves are capable of mistakes. That does not, however, change the fact that the autographs, the original manuscripts, were free from all error. So the first clarification is that inerrancy only applies to the original manuscripts. The second clarification is that inerrancy requires us to pay attention to the intentions of the human authors. It requires us to pay attention to the intentions of the human authors. A good example of this is the order in which the gospel writers tell us their stories about the life of Jesus. If you pay very careful attention, Matthew may occasionally tell a story in a different chronological order than Luke, for example. And some people point to that and say, aha, this is an error. The problem is that the gospel writers don't always claim to be telling us what happened in chronological order. If they did make that claim and they were found to have different orders, it would be a problem, but they don't. So think about a newspaper. You may not read physical newspapers anymore, but hopefully you're at least familiar with the general layout. How do newspapers work? Do they, on the one hand, chronicle everything that happened within their area beginning on Monday morning? Of course not, right? They arrange stories in order to highlight what they think was most important. You can tell what the editors of a newspaper deemed most significant by the placement and length of the story. Then, of course, you have some stories arranged by category, sports, lifestyle, police reports, that kind of thing. Now, newspapers are certainly capable of errors, but no reasonable person picks one up and says, this thing is is full of errors because it's all out of order. We understand the genre, and that helps us make sense of what the editors were doing when they arranged the stories the way they did. A similar thing is true of the Gospels. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, arrange stories about Jesus so as to communicate truths about him in the most compelling ways possible. And it's possible to do that without being untruthful. We simply can't expect them to do something they've never claimed to do. We also need to pay attention to the intentions of the human authors when it comes to reporting what someone else said. It was common for ancient writers to summarize or paraphrase rather than quoting verbatim. To the extent that they communicate the meaning of the speaker accurately, there's no reason why this should be considered untruthful. It's also possible for a biblical author to report something erroneous or untrustworthy that someone else said. So returning to the analogy of the newspaper, imagine a writer quotes, a local government official who says something misleading or flat-out false. The editors may choose to fact-check the official within the article, or it may be so clearly wrong that they leave it to the readers to understand that. Either way, reporting the error is not itself erroneous. So when we're reading the Bible, it's helpful to keep in mind who is speaking. If the narrator is speaking, or if Jesus is speaking, for example, it's fair to say we should assume that what they're saying is true. 
but if they are quoting a human character in the story, we cannot always trust what those characters say. Now, speaking of newspapers, a, a third clarification about inerrancy is that just because the Bible reports something does not mean it commends it to us. Just because the Bible tells us something that happened does not mean it's saying this was a good thing. I always sort of shake my head when I hear someone say something like this. They say, you can't possibly believe the Bible, right? It's, it's heroes were all polygamists and slaveholders. That way of reading the Bible makes about as much sense as someone reading in the newspaper about a triple homicide and saying, I can't read this paper anymore if they're going to try to get me to murder someone. <laughs> it's possible to report something truthfully without commending that behavior to your readers. The Bible can describe the sinful actions of people like Abraham and Solomon and so on and many others without prescribing those actions for us. A fourth and related clarification is that the Bible is not exhaustive on every single subject. In other words, saying that the Bible is true and free from all error is not the same as saying that the Bible says every true thing that could possibly be said. It does not give us the answer to every question we could possibly ask, but it does give us truthful answers to every question that God deems we need to know. Returning to the Gospels, John himself explicitly says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, people sometimes wonder, for example, why we know so little about Jesus' life from his childhood to the beginning of his ministry. There are about two decades unaccounted for. What's up with that? The simple answer is that God doesn't think we need to know. It's not that he's withholding information. It's just that he's emphasizing what is of first importance. He tells us the miraculous circumstances of Jesus' incarnation and birth, so as to say that what he's about to do in Jesus is only something that God could do. He tells us about Jesus' baptism, temptation, ministry, miracles, teaching, death, resurrection, and ascension. And he tells us that Jesus was perfectly sinless through and through, even in those years we know little about. But that's apparently all we need to know. And of course, there are countless other questions we may have that the Bible simply does not answer, nor does it speak to many things that we can learn from in God's creation, things like geometry and chemistry. But to the extent that the Bible speaks to any given topic, it, it speaks in complete truth and without error. A fifth clarification is that inerrancy leaves room for figurative language. Many biblical authors use imagery to communicate truths about God, about us, about history, and so on. When these authors speak of trees bowing down and mountains clapping their hands, it would be foolish of us to adjust our glasses on our nose and say, well, actually, mountains don't have hands. Often, truth can be communicated more forcefully and powerfully by saying something figurative, something that is not literally true yet still conveys something absolutely true. Related to figurative language is something called phenomenological language. That's a tongue twister. 
phenomenological language is a fancy way of saying that sometimes we describe something from our own perspective. Now, one of the most common ways we do this today is when we talk about the sun rising and setting. Of course, we've learned from our study of the solar system that the sun does not revolve around the earth. So technically, the sun does not rise or set. It's simply that the earth rotates on its axis in such a way that it appears to rise and set. If a meteorologist tells you when the sun will rise or set, he can be truthful and accurate without being literal. One important way that the Bible uses phenomenological language is when it speaks of God relenting or changing his mind. God says, for example, that he's going to destroy the city of Nineveh. He sends Jonah to warn them about this destruction. After a brief pit stop inside a large fish, Jonah arrives in Nineveh, preaches to the people there. They repent, and it says that God relented of the disaster he had spoken. So did God change his mind? From our perspective, it sure looks that way because he said he was going to do one thing, and then he ended up doing something different. But we know from elsewhere in Scripture that God always shows mercy to those who repent. That is his settled posture toward sinners. So like a meteorologist telling us what time the sun is going to come up, the Bible can communicate something truthful about God, even if it does so in a way that is not literal. Now, with all of these clarifications in place, it's worth pointing out that just because the Bible is free from real contradictions does not mean it is free from apparent contradictions. We are finite, and there are things that are difficult for our minds to grasp. So it is very possible for us to read the Bible and think that we have come across some kind of error. When that happens, the problem is never with Scripture. It's always with our faulty and limited understanding of it. So I want to give you some practical ideas for what you can do when you're reading the Bible, and especially when you encounter something in the Bible that seems to be a little off or something that you're having difficulty understanding. The first practical idea I want to give you is start and end with the character of God. There are many rational reasons why we should trust the Bible, but we also have to leave room here for faith. Not blind faith, but reasonable faith. God himself is perfectly truthful. He is truth with a capital T. Hebrews 6.18 even says that it is impossible for him to lie. So if you come across something in the Bible that you find troublesome for whatever reason, start by reminding yourself that this is God's Word, and because it is His Word, it must be truthful and trustworthy and free from all error because He is incapable of anything else. So start with His character. Ask Him to help you understand. The next practical idea I want to give you is, is look for resources that can help you understand. A good place to start is by getting yourself a decent study Bible to have on hand. It can often go a long way in helping clear up questions you have as you read. And of course, ask your pastor. I want to encourage you, before you go digging online for what some Bible guru has said about any given passage of Scripture, 
Ask the man whom God has given watch over your soul. He may not be able to give you an answer off the top of his head, and you shouldn't expect him to, but he ought to know where and how he can help you find an answer. My third practical takeaway is that you need to approach this endeavor with humility. There are simply some answers that God has not seen fit to give us just yet. And you may be able to find speculations about them here or there, but it is better to let God set the agenda for what you need to know and what you need to leave as a mystery. Deuteronomy 29 verse 29 puts it this way, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, there are some things that God has chosen to reveal, and there are other things that He has chosen to keep secret for now. Anytime you encounter something mysterious or difficult to understand, or anytime you have a question that the Bible simply does not seem to answer, let that be a reminder to you that He is the Lord and you are not. He is not obligated to say any more than He has already said. And we cannot expect to grasp fully the wisdom of an infinitely wise God. The fourth and final takeaway that I want to give you is don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer. There in Deuteronomy 29, God says that the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. We could spend all of our time digging for answers to very difficult questions while ignoring things that are plainly true in Scripture. If we do that, then what we're seeking is not actual wisdom. We're, we're acting foolishly. At the end of the day, the central claim of inerrancy, that the Bible is trustworthy and free from all error, that's not just a claim about the Bible. It's a claim about God. If this book is indeed breathed out by Him, then our only response can be to trust it more than we trust our own wisdom, and not only to trust, but to obey. So say with the psalmist, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law, and say as well, your testimonies are my delight, they are my counselors. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Henderson Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit us on Facebook or check out our website, hendersonbaptist.org.